0: everybody, Welcome to The Last Nine. My name is James Albarn. Hope you're all having a wonderful week. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're new to the show, then please do hit subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this podcast. And uh, if you would like to, then head over to patreon.com forward slash nine films where you can give me some of your money to support the show and keep it all going on this week's show i speak to singer songwriter tom williams uh, tom came to prominence with the band tom williams and the boat and they released three albums between 2010 and 2014 uh, they were championed by the likes of lauren laverne and steve Lamacq over at six music Uh, And after taking a break from band duties, Tom released two acoustic solo albums, New House and New Guitar, before releasing the album All Change last year. All Change is an interesting album in the way it came to being made, which you'll hear about later, and uh, was a bit of a triumph with great critical response, and it was chosen as one of the top ten albums of the year by BBC Six Music in our conversation recorded at tom's flat in the seaside town of hastings earlier this year we talked about his album all change uh, his other job as a music teacher to school children pop music and our views on a certain red-headed singing megastar who plays a tiny guitar but first i noticed that like me tom is a man who collects vinyl records. And in asking about them, we got into a chat about Spotify and the importance of people
1: buying music. I love Spotify. And if I was gonna get on my hind legs and pretend to be a holier than, holier than thou music consumer, um, I couldn't say that I bought a lot of vinyl I probably spend—I probably—I mean—I probably spend three hundred pounds a year on music, mm-hmm. and actually more if you add in my hundred and forty pounds Spotify subscription or whatever it costs. So maybe we're looking at five hundred pounds a year, but I can't afford to spend more than that, really. Um, and that's for someone who's like, you know, a musician and in music education—it's all tax deductible—and I still can't yeah. afford it. You know, um, I find that. On a Saturday or a Sunday morning, when I go to the the shelf to pull a record out, I will give an I will give a record a second chance. Mm. Whereas, you know, on a morning when I'm trying to quickly download some new music on Spotify f- before I run out the door, and I'm, it says it's got no space. I'll quickly go back through and just delete loads of stuff that oh, it was all right, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's a shame because spending £10 on a CD, it's not because I want your £10, it's because you'll listen to it more than once if you spend £10, because you'll think, "I'll give it another go, you know. And I think that just leads to a more engaged, um, rewarding experience for the fan and the musician, because, you know, you'll, you'll hear things on the second, third and fourth listen that you won't otherwise. Um... And some music just doesn't work on the first
0: listen. Well, it's like the um, the, the Arcade Fire album. I got that on vinyl, and I, I really liked the single. And The first time I listened through to the vinyl, it just I, just I just feel like oh. But like it was when I would go back and listen to it again and yeah. again is when I started to appreciate what they were doing with it.
1: But I'll even find sometimes I'll buy a vinyl. I'll spend twenty pounds on the vinyl. But then I won't actually have time that weekend to put it on the turntable. Mm. So I'll download it on Spotify. And I might even, I'll, even on Spotify, I'll give it a couple more goes because I've put the vinyl. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, this is in my house now. There's a commitment to it. Yeah. And I remember when I heard Dylan for the first time, I did not know what was going on. When I heard The Smiths the first time, you know, I remember I had The Queen Is Dead. And I listened to, I liked There Is A Light That Never Goes Out. But everything else on that album was fundamentally confusing and I didn't like it. I didn't like his voice. I didn't like the drums. I didn't like the weird 80s production. But some of the best music, you have to go to it. You know, some of the best music, when you first hear it, like, oh, I don't like it. There's a fundamental gut reaction Mm. that thinks this goes against all of the taste decisions I've made about my music up till now. You know, I remember when I first heard Pavement. I was into Nirvana, so a guy at school gave me a pavement CD. All the instruments were out of tune, out of time. The singer couldn't sing. I didn't know what was going on. But I sort of listened and, but then there was like there was one song on the album that was a ballad. It was a bit slower, it was quite in tune. I thought I really like that one. And then I would listen back round and round just to get back to that song again. And now I love pavement. You you know, you you, you have to get your head round what that band are trying to do. Mm. Um, but I think with the uh, Spotify, it's almost like, you know, being in the Colosseum with the Lions in Rome or something. You know what I mean? There's a gut decision. It's like, no, nope, I don't like it. Kill it. But actually, yeah. you don't, you don't, you know, you don't know what yeah. that album's going to give you yet. You know, it could be a line, um, you know, and some of my favorite records on that, that I've even then gone on and invested in and bought the vinyl, you know, there's still two or three songs on every album that you love that you don't like sometimes, you know. But, it's, but then a couple of those songs could change your life. But then, you know, that's just the nature of music. Yeah. Um, I, but it's, I, I, I still haven't totally formulated the thought, because I don't want it to sound like I want your money, because it's not about the money, it's what the money, it's, 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 it's that the exchange of money um, sort of cements or confirms a fundamental transaction of respect between a listener and an artist you know an artist might spend you know if you, even if you're an indie artist like me you might spend five thousand six thousand pounds on making an album and they're asking for a tenner you know what i mean they're not asking for six thousand pounds <laughs> you know i reckon war on drugs or whatever probably spent half a million on their album mm. you know and um they're asking for a tenner um and maybe you've been looking forward to this record all year And you still don't want to pay a tenner. It is a
0: weird, like, I feel like it's the same in film. Like, people would rather wait till something is on Netflix or Amazon than go to the
1: cinema to see it. I understand that money is tight. Yeah. And, And that also people don't, sometimes don't have a choice, and that's fine. But for the people that do have a choice, you know, we did lots of pledge music campaigns, you know, with Tom Williams and the Boat and Tom Williams Records. And it was, it was always weird because they were fantastic and people loved being involved and people loved feeling like they were helping the process. But I, sometimes I felt like saying, but you're always helping the process. Why are you more happy about spending £10 on a pledge music campaign rather than buying, temp, buying a CD at the end of a show? It's exactly the same. You are always saving the artist's bacon. You are always keeping, you know, the show on the road. Um... It's tricky. It's tricky. And obviously, you know, you can't, you know, money, money is tight, you know, but um, I do think there needs to be a, an exchange or a, I don't know, it's, 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 it's really tricky. Mm. I love, I love the breadth of Spotify. I love the depth of Spotify and the, and the amount of material there. You know, there's a lot of stuff that when it came out of the vinyl. When it came, when when stuff came out of vinyl, went on to CD, a lot of stuff never... People had to renegotiate their record deals to get printed on CD. A lot of great music, like even the Phil Spector stuff, never got on CD until sort of the mid-90s because, yeah. you know, that guy's estate was in chaos or whatever. So it's a great, you know, there's loads of stuff on Spotify which hasn't been in circulation for ages. Um, And maybe if the payment structure wasn't so crooked and Spotify weren't siphoning out so much money rather than giving it to the artists, maybe everyone would feel better about it. You know, there are people with, you know, Father John Misty has three million Spotify players a month, which equates to about, um, you know, £17,000 a month, which doesn't sound like a lot of money. But actually, over a year, it's quite a lot of money. It's two hundred grand. Yeah. Um, And that that must be a sizable chunk of income, for an artist that's, you know, it's on Bella Union. I mean, he's a big, he's a big act, you know, he's a Coachella headliner or whatever, but he's, um, it's it's scary, the level you need to get to on Spotify to, to make it work.
0: And also, you say 17,000 is a lot and it is a lot. Right. But, when he's getting 300 million plays, it's, it doesn't seem like it is a lot. It doesn't, yeah, You know what I mean? It's not yeah. the amount of plays he's getting
1: versus the, the amount of money he's getting for that. So like, we played a couple of gigs a couple of years ago with George Ezra when he was first starting. And I then, sort of, I then sort of kept a tab on George's career. And there was a point at which Budapest had hit 25 million plays on Spotify. And I worked out... I should do the sums, actually. I worked out that for 25, let's type this in now, 25 million times 0.07. So 0.07 is how That's much a pence stream. Right. George would have earned 1.7, 1,750,000 pounds. So that's great. But if 10% of those 2.5 million people that thought, I want to listen to Budapest. If 10% of them had bought it on iTunes, he would have made two and a half million. So it's really difficult. Do you, want, do you want 10 times as many people to listen to your music or do you want to make half the money? And that's a guy who's a pop act. There's not many people yeah. selling more records than an act at that level. And then to make it even more confusing and to make, it, and make you even more, you know confused about how this model might work in the modern music industry, you remember that when the BBC started, when the BBC started radio, record labels didn't want the radio to play their songs, of their acts on the radio, because they thought, if the song is on the radio, who's gonna buy the album? And now you realise that it's a promotional tool, you know, if it's on the radio, people are like, oh, I really want that in my house, I really want to, to buy that song. Um, but Spotify isn't a promotional tool. It is, it's the end product. It it stops people buying the physical product potentially because they've already got it. I don't know. I didn't really want to get on a roundabout Spotify. What
0: What would you prefer then to be heard by many more people
1: or to have a smaller devoted fan base? As a, as you don't have a choice as it as a, as a as an artist at our level who's still mainly sort of you know playing clubs you don't have a choice. You take what you can get, <laughs> you know. Um, you're in the business of selling tickets, but then you're also in the business of balancing the books. So Spotify might help you sell some more gig tickets if you end up on chill acoustic vibes playlist, you know. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, put, it, doesn't put, it doesn't put the band in travel lodges, you know, and all that kind of real stuff. And then you realize that, you, and then you look at music now, and you realize that actually someone like Kendrick or Kanye or even hip hop acts on or, or DJs on a far lower level, their whole business model is completely engineered towards this new reality where you can tour with a laptop, a DJ, obviously if you're playing the O2 or whatever, you need video screens. And, but if you take all that out of it, you're not lugging six dudes around, flying them around the world, putting them all in hotels, renting equipment, You know, it's just a mic and a DJ. Um, And also you can make the music a lot cheaper. You know, if you're a a hip-hop artist or a DJ, you can can make 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 it yourself. So you can also generate more content more often on Spotify. And so people like, you know, Drake or Kendrick or whoever can put out albums far more regularly, generate more income stream, generate more content, tour cheaper. And all the dudes with guitars and drum kits and like lugging amps into the venue—you feel like dinosaurs. Like, what, what, what are we doing wrong? You know, just because we like a different kind of music, We almost like get punished for it. You know, but it's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a weird state of affairs.
0: You're all right though, because you have other Tom Williamses infesting your Spotify players. <laughs>
1: it's so annoying. Yeah. So yeah, for people that. Might not be aware. I just have, always just have random Tom Williams's appearing on my Spotify profile. And I, there was one, uh, th- this one guy who just bas- basically made dance music. Um, and it took me one search on Spotify to find the profile that that song should have been on. I'm just emailing Spotify earnestly saying, please take this down. And I had, I had messages from people going, oh, Tom, heard the new track.
0: I like your new direction.
1: Yeah, I did. I was like, it's not me. I even had text from my dad saying, we all listen to the new song, um, and I like it, comma honestly, as if <laughs> I was like, it's not me. Please stop trying to like this new material, which isn't me. I think what gave it away, because I didn't even
0: listen to it. The
1: artwork. The artwork, I was like, naff. Bit of a departure. A bit
0: lazy Tom. He's just done word up. Yeah, he? that's always done. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. So I was in a band called Tom Williams and the Boat, that went from about 2007 to 2014, and you know that's a long time to be in a band. And so everyone, we had a little break. I went off and made two acoustic records, um, and did a couple of tours around the UK and festivals with my wife Sarah, and that was just acoustic guitar, piano, and I wanted to do that kind of storyteller, more narrative thing again. and then I was asked to go and spend a week at Leeds Beckett University, which is like, it's, I think it's the old Leeds Poly. It's not Leeds University, it's the, the other one. Beautiful university. And I was, I was asked to go and spend a week in the recording studios there. Um, and Carl, the, the guy who did the course, he did this artist in residence thing, he said, um, you know, you can record what you like, you can record covers, you can record some of your old songs, um, but you're, you'll basically be with music tech students. And um, we'll put a little band together of students and let me know what you need. So I said, Oh, this sounds great fun. You know, drums, bass, guitars, backing vocals, piano player. Um, and then I, I just thought, Well, I'm just going to bring some new songs, see if I can make an album cheaply, you know, see what happens. But I also hadn't totally read the emails properly and thought they would be music students. So I thought they'd be really good at playing. You know, music tech is learning how to record music, not yeah. learning how to play it. And I only found out as I went into my hotel the night before that um, they weren't music tech students at all. Oh, sorry, they weren't music students, they were music tech students. So then I, I was on the phone to Sarah, I was like, oh, they might be really crap at playing, you know, they're just 19-year-old guys. And she just said, like, who do you think you are? You were a 19-year-old guy when you did, like, Glastonbury and stuff. So, you know, stop being such an arrogant prick. <laughs> I was like, well, "Okay." will <laughs> go. And I turned up the next day and, and there were sort of about, there was about 10 of them, two student engineers, you know, drums, bass, couple of guitars, singers, um, and they were amazing. And apart from the, f- the first song we did was a song called What a Shame. We did that. We recorded that again later because it was, you know, yeah. was the, we hadn't played together before. But we did two songs a day, did about seven days um, and uh, got to the end of the week. And I, I, I took all the files home and I was sitting at this table and just, listening back through and I emailed Carl and I said, I think we've got half an album here. I think we sort of accidentally made most of a record, Um, but I need to come back and do some more. And he said, well, we haven't got the budget for it. And if you did come back, it would be kind of, you'd have to sort it yourself. And you'd have to be doing the Easter holidays and none of the kids are going to want to come back in the Easter holidays. And I emailed them all and they just said, yeah, we're definitely up for it. So we went and finished the record and brought the tapes back to London, added some bits. You know, added some gospel singers and some strings, and Ant from the Boat added some guitar, which really helped, you know, on some of the big songs. Um, and then, uh, and then it, it was weird, about six months before, I'd been, on, I'd been doing the last bit of press for the um, acoustic record, and I'd been on Round Table with Steve Lemack. And a last minute addition to the, to the show was Peanut from the Kaiser Chiefs, who's also weirdly from Leeds. And he was there with a the guy from the record label, uh, called Kevin McCabe, and, and he said, he suddenly realised who I was and said, oh, I remember listening to the first Tom Williams and the Boat record. I really liked that record. And he literally like, gave me a card, like the record label go out of a film, and said, if you ever want to make another album, just give me a call. And I said, well, I'm not going to make another album because I've just done an album and I want to have a lie down for a bit and write some new songs. And then, and then, you know, I ended up going to Leeds. So when I when we finished the album in Leeds, he was the only guy that I really had in mind to send it to. And Kevin was working for Caroline, and Caroline signed it, and it was out six months later. Um, but it was made, you know, with it was because I think because it was made with no external pressure, and it was just made with these kids, I say kids, students from Leeds, um, who had never made an album or ever played on you know, a 12-hour session, let alone for sort of 10 days in a row. You know, doing two songs you've never heard before every day. Um, It's got a really lovely feel to it. And the album that we delivered to Caroline, the track listing, you know, and the mixes and everything didn't change. They just took it as it came. And I think because of that, everything that happened that year felt like a little bonus, you know. We did sessions for Radio Two. We had playlists of singles on on Six. We did you know everything we'd done with the with the Boat records and more. You know again festival wise, we sold more tickets live. I took I took the um, the core of the lead student band out on the road with me as well, and it was just a really lovely year and just a way of sort of injecting sort of youthful enthusiasm back into the whole process because it was probably like my sixth record or something, but it felt like my first. You know. It's felt weird, sort of ten years into my career, getting a record deal for, like, really the first time. Because Caroline are part of Universal. You know, everyone we'd worked with on the boat stuff had been fairly indie. Moshi Moshi were quite indie. They weren't, you know, they didn't have funding from any big labels or anything. So it was a really amazing year, you know. And those guys, those, those three guys from Leeds Uni that are in the band are, are still in my band. Um, and we've just done a new record together as well. So, um... So yeah. But that album was called All Change. Cause I read
0: I think it was like a Guardian article or something that said that you'd all but given up on music. Was that was that true or
1: I think I said to someone I had no plans to make a record. And I didn't. Right. Because I just finished touring the other record. It'd literally sure. been like three weeks. I would have definitely gone and made another record. But I think saying I had no plans to make a record suddenly became He gave up! Yeah. He sold all his guitars. He chopped his hands off and and said that he'd never make another album, but that wasn't totally true. Um, But I certainly had no plans, and it certainly took me by surprise, and that had never happened before. You know, normally, you know, everything had been very rehearsed, very, you know... When you don't have have much money and you're self-financing making albums, you have to be rehearsed before going into the studio. Otherwise, you're just sitting there with the clock ticking and money dripping down the drain while the drummer tries to remember how to play the beat or whatever, you've got to be totally drilled. And with this Leeds album, we were, they were, th- these guys were learning and writing parts for songs that they'd never heard before. And then we were playing them relentlessly, like 20 or 30 times, four hours of the same song. And then we'd all limp into lunch, like in, this, in the student union cafeteria and eat a jacket potato and then <laughs> go and do another song again. But it was just amazing, because like, throughout all the sessions, everyone was sort of thinking, wow, this is exciting. Is this going to be an album? Is this going to be on iTunes? Is this going to... You know, are we going to have to do music videos? And I was like, yeah, maybe. And everyone's going, whoa! And that was really lovely. Um, Yeah, it was a real real highlight for me, I think, professionally and creatively. And then for it to get voted sort of one of the top ten albums of the year by Six Music as well... You know, everyone else on that list, you know, probably sold hundreds of thousands of records. I think This Is The Kit is probably about as indie as it got, you know. can't think of who else was on the list. Thundercat, Father John Misty. Corny Barnett. Corny Kurt Barnett, Barnett. Kurt Vile, yeah. You know, by all intents and purposes, those are major label artists, you know. So it was really amazing. Um, and it sort of, you know... It's nice, also, sort of, ten years into a career of sort of making records and making music, to, um, to, you know, feel like there's a real trajectory, sort of propelling us forward.
0: It's funny when you say you hadn't given up, because all the articles you read are like he he's given up with music and he's gonna go and be, he's gone off and become a teacher and.
1: No, I mean, I've been teaching since I left uni, I've been teaching since I was 19, you know, because it's pocket money, good pocket money, I used to teach just on a Sunday, and then when I left uni, that was about seven years ago, um, i just met Sarah, who was later become my wife, and we wanted to move in together, and we thought, oh, I need some money, I can't just be living at home. Um, So I, you know, I did, I got two days a week, and then I got three days a week, but the teaching I do is sort of half, it's half junior school kids, you know, learning Katy Perry, which is actually really nice because it means I get to listen to pop music and I, I can never ignore pop music. I was going to ask you about that. Actually. Yeah, that, that's a whole other interesting thing. But also to the older kids, I, and, and I, do, I do it at arts festivals, you know, I do workshops, I do it at secondary schools. I teach songwriting, you know, and I get to help kids record their first songs, help them get onto the radio. Kids that want to do it you know, professionally, do they want to go to uni? How do they get a manager? How do they get a booking agent? So it doesn't feel like school teaching, it feels like like life teaching. You know, it feels like... There's always a stage when you're teaching songwriting to a kid and they're listening to Hosier or you know, Georgia Smith or whatever and then, and then they sort of discover from another kid that you make music too and then they find your albums. And then they sort of come in the next week and, you know, they're like, oh, I really like that song. Or... And then you can actually, and then, and then you have this really nice situation now where you're both songwriters. And you're both just talking to each other about how to write a good song. And you're both just sort of waiting for a good song to arrive. But te- teaching, is, t- teaching is a really actually important part of my creative process. You know, if I'm, if I'm telling a kid to write a song for next week, I've got to write a song as well. I don't have to play the song to the kid, but I, I sort of do tell myself off. If I hear myself going, come on, Adam, write a bloody song, you know. Yeah. And then there's a voice in my head going, when did you last write a song? You know, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll always, have, I'll always have books with lyrics and stuff bobbing about, you know. And you'll always teach. Yeah, I really like the teaching. I, I just, I'm the kind of guy that just would go mad if I wasn't if I wasn't busy. I have to be busy all the time. So if someone gave me a hundred grand publishing check and said I didn't have to teach anymore, I'd just be, be off my mind. Bored. I'd be so bored. And you can't write all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> I've done. I've started doing the odd thing where um, there's a guy, the guy that is, has produced the next record is a guy called Tim Rice Oxley that was in a band called Keen, and I met him about um of three years ago and he he got me doing these things called 20 song days where you literally go and you write a song every half an hour for 12 hours and it's brutal because you know the first song you write about what's in your head whatever you're thinking about and then for the next like 11 and a half hours you're just you've got nothing there's nothing in your mind and it's an exercise in improvisation and kind of and just getting it done um and it's and it sort of taught me that you can be creative whenever you want to be. You've just got to put the hours in. Yeah. Which is quite... And it's a very brutal, unromantic way of making work. But it does... It, you will get something done. Whether or not it's better than the one that came into your mind when you were walking around the supermarket remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, it's a discipline, isn't it? Because I do a bit of music and...
1: Um... But
0: script writing, and, mm. you know, when you have a full-time job, it's hard to motivate yourself sometimes to do it, but you just have to sort of force yourself and go, right,
1: tonight I'm just doing this. Yeah. But that can, that can also sometimes stultify the whole thing, you know, and make yourself feel very uninspired and static. I think you've got to be thinking about it all the time. It's like a boxer or if you're, if you're going to go for a run, you know, you've got to be... If you don't, you know, if you, if you get home after an exhausting day of work and you think, oh, I've got to go on a run now, you're like, oh, I can't be bothered. But if, if you're on the, on the drive home and you think, okay, I'm going on a run. Come on, I'm going on a, you know, I'm definitely going to go on a run. You've got to be thinking about the song. You've got to be listening for lines. You've got to be... I'm not the kind of guy that can write in his head. There are some people that can write complete songs in their head. Bob Dylan writes about that quite a lot. Um, but you definitely have to be thinking creatively. It's very easy to be pulled into a very uninspiring world of work and a world of life, you know, where nothing is creative, nothing is inventive, nothing is poetic, nothing is inspiring. Yeah. But you do have to put your artist's hat on and try and, you know, you have to consume art, you have to read books, you have to listen to records, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a, and it's, it's, it's a lifestyle in that sense, not in a Rolling Stones, let's all get drunk kind of way, but actually in a way where you have to kind of consume art. You have to put yourself in the position to be inspired. You know, and I spend my life pre- preaching about this stuff to kids, trying to get them to be proactive. And it, you know, but it's not, it doesn't always work. No,
0: it's not, it's not easy sometimes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like I've been uh, really
0: productive since Christmas. You know, I've started this, I've been recording my songs. Yeah. But, you know, I started my job last February and
1: and it it is easy just to let stuff slip. You're knackered. You want to sleep. Yeah. You've got to maintain your relationships. You need to actually see your girlfriend at some point. You actually need to, like, oh, we've, we've just sat on the sofa and watched TV for the last three weeks, like why don't we go and do it? Let's go out, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was, you know, and, you know, you it's it's so difficult and it's about keeping everything in the air. But I remember, because I, um, when I was about 19, I was meant to be going to uni and I decided last minute that I didn't want to go because I wanted to do music. And this was sort of just before Tom Williams and the Boat started. What were you going to do at uni? Fine art. And then I went and worked in a cafe and I got a flat and I, paid my bills and that's what I really wanted I wanted the independence and then I realised like I thought what am I what am I doing that was such a great opportunity to go to uni and I can st- my guitar will always be on my bed when I get home and you know, I can always write whenever you know because what I'm doing now is I'm just working all day to pay for the flat I'm not writing sure. any more songs yeah, yeah and you can't do seven gigs a week because you live in Tunbridge Wells or wherever, there's only one venue. You got to play every three weeks. So what are you actually doing? So I then went, I did I did go to uni in the end. And then and then I think it was later on I saw I saw a talk by Paul Smith, the fashion um, guy, and he said that he left school when he was sixteen and he opened a he opened a, a clothes shop in Sheffield. I think he was from Sheffield. And his thing was that he had he had a guy that got him Levi's five hundred ones, black five hundred ones which were like the punk thing to have, the coolest, straight jeans. And he opened this shop seven days a week and no one came. And two months later, he moved back in with his parents, tail between his legs. And then a couple of months later, he saved up enough money for the rent again, or for the shop and he opened on a Saturday. And then he opened on a Sunday. And then he opened on a Friday. But he was working jobs as well, you know, to keep the shop open. And he said, it's all about the juggle, you know, and, and that always stuck with me. I think gone are the days of the romance of Simon Cowell's hand coming out of the clouds and laying his hand on your forehead and saying, you are the chosen one. I don't know, if that's romantic. You, no, stop touching me, Simon Cowell. You will now be pop star now. you know, I will buy you a flat in Kensington and you will go to all the parties. You know That doesn't happen. It does happen to a couple of people. But it's well documented that all that money all that money for your advance, all that money the record company gave you for your car. Sure. It's all on your dime. They want that money back. So, you know, I think if you can be self-sufficient, if you can work a job that you like, if you can stay creative, if you can stay happy, I think that's the goal.
0: I thought it was interesting how you said that uh, teaching was good because it, it it was a good thing that it made you listen to pop.
1: Well, I, I I remember I talked about that with um, Pete perfidis, who's a music journalist. He did the he wrote the bio for Easy Fantastic, which was the third Tom Williams and the Boat record, yeah. and that was an album. You know, the album before that was an album called Teenage Blood, which was sort of you know, really written, predominantly, well, about four of the ten songs were kind of written about a breakup, and so all the songs were written very quickly, very emotionally. Easy Fantastic felt like I was kind of starting from scratch again, and I just started teaching a lot, just moved in with Sarah, Um, and so, you know, I was actually getting to look at songs like Raw by Katy Perry, or, can't even think what I would have been teaching then, And actually looking at the structure of them all and listening to the melodies and stuff, and that definitely influenced my writing and stuff. There's songs on that album like Caroline or Suzanne, or even All Day, which was kind of the single off that album, which were definitely more inspired by kind of a leaner approach to kind of pop writing, seeing what you can do with fewer chords. There were obviously things on that album like Hurricane and 25, which could be, which were noisier and a bit rockier, and could definitely you could definitely see a root in in previous stuff that I'd done. But I was really interested by that. <clears throat> but I mean, still, you know, I'll listen it's 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 really interesting because I'll still I'll t- I'll teach songs, whether it's a Clean Bandit song or a James Bay song or a Zane song. And kids know which ones are the good ones. Like, um, Like sometimes you can just see a kid buzzing after just playing a song for the first time and you'll say, that's an awesome song, isn't it? They're like, yeah. And other times we'll play a song and they'll just go, that's rubbish, isn't it? It's like, yeah, it's a bit rubbish. You know, and and you'll have quite funny conversations with an eight-year-old. You'll say, so what do you think they're singing about in this song? And they just look at the page and they go, nothing? And I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But then, conversely, there are some songs that are just sort of absolute filth, and they're just completely over the heads of a, you know an eight year old. And then you sort of judge the parent, you know, why are you letting them listen to this? But I, it, was, it was quite funny. I was there was a there's a there's a lady who's the head of music at one of the little junior schools I teach at. And she, I don't know, she's probably twenty years older than me, and um, she she said, um, what are you teaching a lot of at the moment to all the younger kids? Because I want to do a new a new song for the school band. I said, well, everyone's learning Shape of You. Like, they just love it. She said, I can't teach that song. It's absolute filth. (laughs) And I was like, it is absolute filth. And you're right. But also, it's on the radio. And it's not censored. And every kid's heard it. They don't know what it's about. You know, they're all singing Shape of Your Birdie. But they have no idea what it is. And it, you know... And it's it's interesting because I remember I, I recently saw a video I think it's on the New Yorker website of Ed Sheeran and the two songwriters he wrote. I it. was
0: about to say
1: yeah. yeah, and they were and like he wrote like apparently Ed had written loads of lyrics like shape of your body I'm in love with your body and apparently one of them said Ed you can't say that it's just like you're objectifying women.
0: Yeah, and they were gonna they were gonna put in a line like I'm in love with your body but really I'm in love with your mind or something like that. And that is
1: in the song. Is it? Yeah, it says something like I'm falling. It's like I'm falling for. There's a line that's basically like, I'm falling for all of you, like, but mainly your body. <laughs> it's the body that. It's the body that's like doing main it for attraction. me. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, you're really nice and stuff, and uh, but mainly, really like your bum. So yeah, I, it's it's difficult. Yeah, it was
0: interesting that video because there was that bit where it's like my bed sheets
1: smell like you, and they're like, oh, I'm not sure we should. No, well that was interesting because. The original, Ed's lyric was, my sweatshirt, my t-shirt smells of you. I think that's quite sweet. But yeah. What he probably thinks of it is, oh, she slept in my t-shirt. So he's probably thinking of it in quite a seedy way. But it could be read as, she fell asleep on me on the sofa or whatever. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about it the way you just... But the songwriters, one of them, changed it to my bed sheets," And who sniffs bedsheets? Yeah, it's a bit... That's rank. It's kind of weird. It's really weird. It's like, yeah,
0: so... There's also that weird lyric as well when he's being thrifty and he takes her on a
1: date to the... An all-you-can-eat oriental buffet. I'm like,
0: Ed, you've got a lot of money.
1: I know, and you're ripping off some local business by filling your backpack full of sweet and sour chicken. And then someone was saying, someone was trying to, someone was trying to say that Ed Sheeran is a feminist songwriter because he, he writes about wanting to have sex with women even after they've eaten. I was like, that doesn't make him a feminist. That makes him just an animal. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, he says loads of questionable stuff. And there was a thing recently, like, he got, he just, when he picked up the Brit Award this, this week, um, you know, he, he referred to the publicist at his record label as The Girl. Like, he didn't even say her name. And he apparently had done the same thing in the Enemy Awards thing. I don't know. I think he's a weird guy. I think, I think if you, I think anyone that has to put up with that level of success is a weird guy. You know, I don't, I don't think it's I don't think it's a coincidence that you know he's, you know he's 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 going to marry a, a girl that he went to school with in his little, you know, in Suffolk. Yeah. I think you know he travels with a big entourage full of people that you know he grew up with. You know, and they're there to tell him he's a dickhead when he's a dickhead, you know, so that he doesn't get too big for his boots. And you know, it's it's nothing personal. I just don't like his music. No. I doubt he'll like my music either. But, um. There, with that amount of visibility, it, there does come a responsibility to set an example, and to call a grown woman a girl is condescending and, and awful, and, and also quite emblematic of a lot of problems in you know, I think it's like it's still about 70, 30 male to female employees at record companies in the U.K. Um, <clears throat> and it's you know difficult to be taken seriously when everyone around you is a, is a bloke. So, and to be fair to him, there was
0: probably good intentions behind that. He just goes and picks the
1: worst word, yeah, absolutely. I, um, but there's other stuff he does as well. Like, let's not let him get off too lightly here. <laughs> you know, he'll go on Desert Island Discs and say, Oh, I don't want to talk about my drug abuse problems. But yeah, he's got songs that talk about his drug abuse problems all the time. I once had a six year old kid say, There's a new Ed Sheeran song I really want to learn. I was like, what's it called? He said, drunk. It's like, you shouldn't even be thinking about what being drunk is. Yeah. You know, it's just like, and everything in his song, it's like a bottle of red wine and another white line. And it's just like, I don't know. It's fine. I don't really care. But do you think,
0: because obviously he's got a lot of young fans, but at the same time, you sort of think if that's what he wants to write about, then can you really
1: stop? Him. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean it's, it's it's fine, but it's it's more just the um it's the uh, hypocrisy of, of being holier than thou on Desert Island and going, no, you know, I've got lots of young fans, so I don't want to talk about my drug abuse problems. You're selling authenticity. You're sell- you're selling a, a shtick of <clears throat> this is just me, Ed, being who I am, with my acoustic guitar direct from my heart to your ears. My tiny acoustic with, yeah, guitar. Yeah, with my and you know, this is my diary and this is my life and, you know, this is the black and white photo of me looking sad and this is, you know, and, you know, find out about what's been happening to me this year on my new album. Um, Actually, you know, I think that Desert Island Discs appearance would have been an opportunity to remove a lot of the stigma of...
0: Yeah, because if he just said "I, I have a lot of young fans, yeah, A, they're not listening to Desert Island Discs, but you know, if one was to stumble across Radio Four and be listening to Desert Island Discs, him talking about his uh, drug abuse problems, like you said, would would remove the stigma. Yeah, and also the glorification of it in in some of his music. If he just talks about it honestly and
1: I can't even really remember where this rant on Ed Sheeran started. I don't know. Oh, it's pop music. No, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think if any of us were put in that level of, of fame and every single word that came out of our mouth was scrutinised, sure, um, our 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 failings would be laid very bare. But I don't... You know, it's like Taylor Swift going missing during the American election when, you know, her reach on the country music Republican voting fan is so expansive that she could have maybe, you know, swung certain states by just doing sure. an Instagram post. I similarly feel that with that... You know if you look look at what, look at what Kendrick Lamar does with his with his spotlight look at what storms he did at the Brit awards with his spotlight you know calling the prime minister a criminal that's incredible that's like that's not shaping your body or I like your body you know what I mean that's real and the way that he'd kept he would have had to keep a lot of it under his up his sleeve because it would have been censored but you know you forget you know bring it back slightly to the pop music thing you forget how visible this all is for kids you know and all Year three kids watch the Brit Awards. You know, they all watch Dua Lipa, Rita Ora, Foo Fighters. You know, Stormzy, Rag and Bone Man. It's all there for them to see, and um, you know they need. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it it it's lovely because it shows you that kids still really listen to music, but it it's it's nice teaching and it's nice still feeling, engaging with that stuff because they say, oh, I want to learn the new song by whoever then I have to listen to it and I have to teach them that. And, um, and, you know, all these songs are written by middle-aged dudes. I'm not, I'm not middle-aged yet, but, you know, all of George Edward's songs are written by Joel from Athlete and then, you know, all of, um, a lot of, you know, Jake Bugg's stuff was written by Ian Archer from Snow Patrol. That's interesting. You know, and someone like Tim Rice-Oxley from Keane will write songs for Gary Barlow and Lily Allen. And I love all that. I love all that idea. Um, I mean, I totally get it. I totally get that, you, you know, you get a beautiful young person and with an amazing voice. And then you get someone that can write the shit out of a song. It's like, no brainer. You know, Elvis sung other people's songs. You know, he's just a pretty boy in a coat, really, isn't he? Um, and if you know, and if you know, wh- wh- why sit around and wait for someone to sing a great song badly and call it real music? Sure, yeah. You know, what's the point? Actually, and and um, if it's a really emotional performance, and it's a better performance than you could do on your own, then that's amazing. Um, I, I don't, I don't totally get sort of forty-five people on one track getting a writing credit. Yeah,
0: they've just sat in a room and gone. Yeah, sounds fine.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it is. It's often often it's people like signing things like, you know, if I produce this album, you're gonna give me ten percent on every song. Managers sometimes get points on songs, percentages on songs just for managing the act, you know. So, you know. Did you know that Simon Cowell had publishing on the X Factor theme tune? which means that every time he plays the X Factor theme tune on the X Factor, which he owns, he prints his own money, literally paying himself his own money. That's ridiculous. So between every ident, between every um, black and white montage about... Oh, my nan's died. This one's for my nan. That's like... ka-ching. And your PRS payment and your PPL payment is proportional to your viewing figures. So if he's... You know, it's like playing to 13 million people 20 times every week. It's incredible. It's amazing. What a dog. I mean, it's
0: very smart, but... Could
1: he get any worse?
0: That's just the kind of like maniacal thing that I could just never, never think
1: of. It's amazing. And then if the guy says, oh, I don't want to give you publishing on it, I wrote it. It's like, oh, we won't use it then. Thank you. It's like Dolly, Dolly Parton famously turned down Elvis Presley covering um, I Will Always Love You when, when she was young. Because um, the Colonel, Elvis's manager, wanted 50% of the song. She said no. And you know, he said he was saying, "Well, who are you? You're yeah, no one. No one knows who you are." And she was like, "I know, but that song's really important for me, and I can't give you 50%." And she phoned her mum. She said, "I just turned down Elvis." You know, and then she put it on her Jolene record, and it did well. But then, obviously, Whitney did it t- ten years later, and sold about 50 million albums, won everything. She won in the end. That's it. That's a victory for integrity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: So there you have it, Tom Williams. My well, thanks to Tom for doing the show and for being so welcoming. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining me this week. Uh, I do hope you come back next time when I'll be chatting with Eddie Flynn, a journalist and documentary filmmaker. Um, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes um, and wherever else you may be listening to the podcast. We're now on Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox and as of this week, Blueberry, which isn't spelt the correct way because they're doing that fancy thing that tech companies do where they spell spell things without the proper spelling so it's b-l-u-b-r-r-y i believe but um hey i'm sure if you're there you already know the spelling and you've already found us and you've already enjoyed the show if you have enjoyed the show then you can donate to the show at patreon.com forward slash the last line where you really should do that because no one has yet we're on episode four and no one's given me any money, so come on. Uh, I mean, you don't have to, you know, it is the podcast is free, and let's be honest, it's going to keep being free, it's going to keep coming at you every other week. Um, but if you give us some money, maybe it could be every week, you know, which is double the amount of podcasts a month, which is double the fun. So just think about that. Thank you for listening. And until next time, I've been James Albon and this is The Last Line.